Well, let's jump into our text for this morning. It's, uh, it's Mark chapter 14. We've been in uh, this book for a while. It's, um, so if you're looking in your pew Bible, I have the page marked here. It's Mark 14, 12 to 26. It's on page uh, 1019. So if you wanted to look there. So we're entering, we've entered the season of Lent, right? We, we've been in this for just a little while now. And this, uh, we're rounding third and headed for home. Uh, and um, we're in the last few days in the life of, of Christ before he goes to the cross, before the death and resurrection. And that's where we are in our text. In fact, our text takes us to the upper room, this powerful setting in the life of Christ. And this morning, um, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. This is the night that Jesus um, has dinner with some friends and, and an enemy, and uh, a night that he took bread and a cup, and he, he blessed them. And in doing so, he changed the bread and the cup forever um, in our lives as well. So let me read our text. I'll be reading uh, from uh, your pew Bible. This is what it says. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived at the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray that you would help me to not at all get into the way of what you want to do here but instead be somehow able to stand aside and let folks see Jesus so that our lives would be transformed by him. I ask this in his name. Amen. One of the advantages of, uh, of traveling as I do between uh, Tennessee and North Carolina, between Bristol and Durham, is I get extended hours of solitude. And for some of you, that might sound like torture, but for me, it's cathartic. 
Um, most of the time, there have been a few harrowing moments. <clears throat> Yesterday, driving over was terrifying. Uh, it snowed. And I don't know if you guys know that. In Tennessee and southwest Virginia, uh, it was not fun. Uh, roads were fine, but people, you know, people. <laughs> and cars. So it gives me these opportunities to, uh, to talk to some, you know, friends on the phone for, a long, for long periods of time, which is really great. But I, I, just, I have to be careful. Right? Because I, I, they know I'm in the car. And so, I, well, I got to go now. Like, that doesn't work. They know. <laughs> I got two more hours in the car. Uh, but I, I use that time a lot to, uh, to, to be quiet, to reflect, to pray. Uh, not to sound overly pious, but it's a good, good time for me. Solitude, right? And listen to music. Uh, listen to a book or a podcast. And occasionally I will listen to a sermon uh, from pastors that I respect and like. And uh, this past week, I was listening to a, a little known pastor out of New York. Um, you may have, may, you probably haven't heard of him, Tim Keller. You know. uh, I really think he's a, a wonderful pastor and teacher. Somehow he seems to have been able to kind of navigate the limelight in a really powerful way. I, I think it, it might have to do with um, a man that shaped his ministry and mine to a lot of extent, a man named Ed Clowney who uh, really pushed this whole idea, like, show me Jesus, right? I, I think that may have given shape there. At any rate, I was listening to a sermon that he preached back in the, in the 90s. It has nothing to do with the text I just read at all. Uh, it was actually a sermon on Ephesians. But during this sermon, he, um, he quoted a, uh, a pastor named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh pastor who pastored Westminster Chapel, not just right down the street from Westminster Abbey, for uh, decades. And uh, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with uh, Martin Lord Jones, I would encourage you to get familiar with with his work. Uh, I will tell you that he was a godly, Christ-centered, brilliant pastor, but he was not timid um, at all. Uh, he was not a respecter of persons, and he was definitely serious about talking to people about what it meant to walk with Jesus and live the Christian life. And so he did not pull punches, which is why I'm bringing him up today. Because as I um, was listening to this sermon from Keller, he quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones, and the quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones rattled me, and I'm still rattled. Uh, before I share the quote, I should tell you that last week started as a fairly normal week for me, <clears throat> in that I knew that I was on uh, the schedule to lead or, or on Wednesday night at the Linton service and also to preach today. And so that just meant that I doubled up in a week on my sermon preparation, my time in God's word. And, um, and so I was spending a good time going between Mark 12 and Mark 14. And I had my commentaries out. I was doing uh, some, some, you know, biblical language work and sort of really getting into it, engaged, and trying to think about you all, like who's going to hear this, and uh, the pedagogy, and all, all of those sort of factors, things that you do, you know, when you're getting ready to do what I'm doing now. And then, I mean, I thought I had done this really, I thought I was doing, I was on, I thought I was okay, you know, I was appreciating the God's word. And then I heard this quote, and it rattled me to the core, because, uh, well, I'll just read it to you, and you'll see why. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He wrote, 
Uh, hold on a second. <laughs> he said about the truth. We are dealing with a danger of ceasing to come under the power of the truth. The moment you cease to be under the power of the truth, you have already become a victim of the evil one. Then he said, I can apply this to myself as a preacher. If I can ever <clears throat> study the Bible without being searched, examined, and humbled, without being lifted up and made to praise God, without feeling as much the desire to sing when I'm alone in my study, it's when I'm standing in the pulpit. If that's not true, I'm in a dangerous state. So I was really busy studying Mark 14, 12 to 26 last week. The text I just read, and as I read it, I'm not sure I was under the power of the truth, allowing it to examine me or humble me <clears throat> or lift me up to praise God. And if you recall what I just read, <clears throat> sorry, from Mark, you can tell why I was rattled. Mark 14 is about the table. Like all those old commercials, uh, but wait, there's more, because he doesn't leave you out. He goes on to address not just the pastor. He says, we're all dealing with the danger of ceasing to come under the power of the truth. The moment you cease to be under the power of the truth, you've already become a victim of the evil one. It also applies to listening to the truth. If you were able to attend churches and go away having felt the power of the truth, then either you or the preacher is failing. If you're able to attend churches and go there without feeling, having felt the power of the truth, then either you or the preacher is failing. If it is all merely a matter of intellectual entertainment, a giving and receiving of information and knowledge, if it stops there and doesn't come to you in such a way as to make you feel uncomfortable, if it does not make you realize your deficiencies, your failures, if it does not expose some hidden secret things in your heart, if it does not make you feel as if you've got to pull yourself together, change your life to do something, if it does not ever move you or thrill you or make you want to shout in praise, well then, you are in a dangerous state. If I can ever study the Bible without being searched, examined, or humbled, if you're able to listen to the truth, Listen to the truth of the Bible or hear somebody teach the Bible and it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. It doesn't make you realize your deficiencies, your failures, expose some hidden secret things in your heart, make you realize you need to pull yourself together, change, do something that doesn't move you. You're in a dangerous state. No, he doesn't equivocate. He doesn't say you might be. He says you are. So I've been studying... Mark 14, 12 to 26. Um, in fact, on Tuesday, when all of this sort of transpired for me, it began like a normal day. We, as a staff, actually had a staff meeting, and we read this text together, talked about it for a while. And it's significant, right? It's the significance of it. And we hear this thing, right? We, we hear this text. We, in fact, we, we hear it weekly in here, right? We hear bits of it when we come to this table, Jesus instituting the table itself. Maybe it's overly familiar, right? I mean, there's a danger to that, that we, we've heard it so much. If you've been around the church any length of time, you hear the words of institution. When Christ, you know, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup 
uh, in the new covenant shed for many. We hear that. Um, and maybe it becomes overly familiar. Um, I should say that this is not a criticism about weekly communion. This is the opposite. Um, because weekly communion is part of this progress of the gospel in our lives, right? Because Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And remember what matters. What matters is the, the progress of the gospel in and through my life, which happens through this constant remembrance of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what we do when we come to the table, this remembrance of who he is and what he's done. And in fact, the table might actually serve as this litmus test for us so that we are able to tell if we're in a dangerous state or not. Because if it doesn't move us, if it doesn't cause us to recognize we need to change, because it cause us to examine ourselves, then it might be an indicator, oh, where am I in terms of my walk with Jesus? Where am I spiritually speaking, right? And so weekly communion then should serve as this help, especially in regards to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. What happens when the context and the words surrounding this table um, no longer examine us, Right? Do you recognize the context of what's happening when Jesus institutes this table? Does it play in your imagination when you walk down these aisles to dip the, the bread in the cup? Is it there about what's happening and who he's surrounded by and what's being said? Because the context of this table, it's powerful. And it should move us. It should challenge us. And I have to admit that when I heard that quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and when I thought about my own study of the word, I think I was more interested in proper homiletics than I may have been about the power of what's happening here in terms of examining our, our lives. So if you take a moment, let's just take a moment, and talk about this text in light of what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this dangerous state, and see if maybe uh, you're as rattled as I am. Let's start where this text begins in Mark 14, 12, the, the context of it. Let's set the stage so that we really, when we come to the table in a few minutes, we really have this played out in our minds what's happening when Jesus does this, right? I, I, love, uh, I, I, I love Thanksgiving to Advent, Christmas. I love that season. It's one of my favorite seasons of the year, primarily because it's the season that my family, we all get together. Uh, my, my three boys are home, and we eat together. Uh, my brothers and sisters and my wife's family, we all try to get together. You all probably do that too. I mean, as, uh, as crazy as family can be, it's awesome, right? Uh, and it's intimate, right? And I, I love, like, being able to participate in, in Christmas Eve services and Advent and, and, and have meals together and all of that. There's this sense of excitement about it and fun intimate sort of relationships that we have with our, with our close family, this connectedness, right? That's the, that's the sense of what's happening at the Passover this week in the life of Jesus is all these people, these folks are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, this marking, this remembrance of the way that God had brought salvation to his people, how he had redeemed them, bought them out of slavery in Egypt and rescued them. It's this beautiful Event And there's all kinds of liturgy that went along with it, that, that Passover meal. But it's an intimate time with family and friends coming together. There's the role that even the, the youngest male child had a, had, a, had a speech to give, a question to ask, that the head of the family would then answer. And they would, 
they would recite parts of the Torah together. They would have these prayers together. They would sing, they would sing halal uh, from the Psalms together. They would eat bread and bitter herbs and, and drink wine and stewed fruit and, and lamb. All of these sort of things in this, in this intimate setting as they're reclining together, as they're spending time together, right? So you, you get this sense of intimacy in, this, in these folks together. This meal was framed with this liturgy. It's a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful, powerful thing. They, were, they would sing, and they were together. And then, so you can imagine Jesus and his disciples, and there were others most likely in the room too, women and children, they were probably all around. And, in, and into this moment, here's Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're reclining at this table, they're partaking of bread together, dipping it into bitter herbs and stewed fruit, they're eating together this bread, drinking this wine, and into that moment, Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. It's this family moment, this intimate moment, when Jesus says that. That's the context out of which this moment that we celebrate every week. That's what's happening in this room, this upper room. This closeness is suddenly interrupted by betrayal. Betrayal. Among friends, family, at a close, intimate time, an event designed to celebrate and remember God's deliverance, God's salvation through his people. Betrayal. It's turning your back on someone who trusts you and loves you for something else, for yourself, for some other motive. Do you think of that when you come to this meal? Do you think of betrayal as part of the context? Because that's what's happening in this room. You can imagine the response of the disciples, right? Because intimate moments like that are fragile. We all know that. We've, we've probably all been in moments, tense moments with family at family events, right? I'm the youngest of six. There's plenty of tense moments with six of us. And into this moment of intimacy, this meal, betrayal. And what did the disciples do? What do they do? They start to wonder, is it me? Isn't that fascinating? The context of this meal, before they took it, before we come to it, they're sitting in this meal with Jesus, friends and enemies, right? And they're sitting in this meal and Jesus tells them that someone will betray them. One of them will betray them. And then what do they do? They examine themselves. They start to question, is it me? Am I capable of betraying this Jesus that I love, who I know loves me? Am I capable of that? To even be able to ask that question means that they probably recognize that, yes, they were. And they all ask this question of themselves and of Jesus. Mark uh, in Mark 14.10, he already tells us that it's Judas. We know it's Judas, and when we hear this story, that's what we think. We immediately know. They didn't know. They didn't know. And they're asking, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And if you read this text closely, what you'll discover is Jesus doesn't tell them. Why not? Why not? Why wouldn't Jesus tell them, oh, John, James, Peter, no, it's Judas. No. No, he doesn't do that. 
He leaves them hanging. Why didn't he just tell them? I think that's because that's where the progress of the gospel happens. I think that's where the gospel starts. It's when we, like the disciples, recognize, oh, on my own, I'm just as likely to betray him as Judas. I'm likely to just put stuff in front of Jesus just as much as Judas did. I'm just as likely to deny him as Peter did. I'm just as likely to put anything in front of him as anyone else. It's this sudden recognition that the sin underneath all the sins is self-righteousness. That sense of, I don't really need a savior. I'm pretty good on my own, right? <laughs> but Jesus leaves these guys, these disciples, these others hanging. Is it I? Am I capable? Yes, you are. Which is an indicator that you need outside help. You need a savior. You need Jesus to help you. That's where the gospel begins. I think that's where the gospel starts to begin in the lives of all these disciples in this moment before they're coming to the table. This examination of themselves, examination of their hearts about where they are, what they need to turn away from in order to really know Jesus and walk with Jesus, what they need to push aside, what they need to really examine and own about themselves to be able to really walk with him. I think it starts right here in this moment in the upper room. That's the context of this table. It's in this moment where Jesus has left these disciples sort of wondering, am I, am I the betrayer? Examining their own hearts, right? And then it's no accident, I don't think, it's no accident that before Jesus institutes this table, that's what's happening. God's people in this room examining their hearts, recognizing that they need help. And that's where the gospel begins for everyone. This reality that I need Jesus. And I'm in dangerous I'm in a dangerous state when I don't fall under the power of the truth, and that's the power of the truth right there. At the core of the Christian life is the question about the sorts of people that God is calling us to be out of this relationship that we have with him and Jesus. The truly terrifying part of this text, the thing that's really terrifying, is that Judas is right in the midst of it, knowing full well probably that he's the betrayer. And he is close to Jesus, close enough to dip bread in the bowl close enough to partake of the bread and the cup, to drink it. He's not out in the street searching for Jesus like the Sanhedrin. He's in the room with them. And Jesus doesn't chase them out. He's there. He's there among them all. It's later on. That's terrifying, if you think about it, about what that might mean for some of us, right? Very close to a dangerous state very close because in this moment everything changed the cup and the bread it all changes right because Jesus that night it says that he took bread and when he given thanks he broke it and he said take it this is my body then he took a cup and he would given thanks he gave it to them and they all all drank from it they all drank from it this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them, take, this is my body. Don't overlook the fact that Jesus broke the bread, right? Broke it. This is my body. Broken for you. Why, why would his body need to be broken for me? 
because I have the capacity to betray him. This is my body, my person. I'm giving it for you, this self-offering for the disciples, for us. And in some way, when we come to this table and we partake of the bread, we are remembering that, that his body was broken for us, right? This beginning of the gospel that we recognize and deal with as we're walking down those aisles before we take of that bread. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. The blood of the covenant, right? This image of covenant and blood have go all the way back to Moses, right? It's traced all through the Old Testament. In fact, this is the moment when Jesus is hearkening to Jeremiah 31, which we heard earlier. Behold, he says in Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is this moment, right? This is my blood poured out in the new covenant, shed for many, right? That's what's being accomplished. It's pouring out of his blood. He invites his disciples into it as he, as he invites us into it. Each time we partake of it, remembering, marking ourselves, aligning ourselves with all that Jesus did. Can you imagine how electrifying those words were to the disciples? This is my body. This is my blood. Broken for you, poured out for you. Even as they sat in this room wondering, if they were capable of betraying the Lord Jesus, recognizing that they needed his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out so that they could experience the forgiveness that Jeremiah speaks of. It's humbling. It's earth-shattering. It's electrifying. Martin Lloyd-Jones asks us this powerful question. He asks us, if you can study the Bible and not come into the power of the truth, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, it doesn't make you want to change, it doesn't make you want to shout hallelujah, then you're in a dangerous state. In a moment, all of us will be standing here partaking of this bread and this cup. And the context of this moment, when it's established, is in a room where there are men and women examining themselves, wondering if they are capable of betrayal examining their hearts before God, before aligning themselves, recognizing their need for this table. This is the beginning of the gospel. And each week that we partake of this, it marks us and reminds us of what God has done. Let me leave you with a few questions before we take a moment and as we sing the song before the Lord's table. Let me ask you some questions for you to think about as you prepare for this table. Does this text make you uncomfortable, this reality that there was a betrayer in the room and Jesus is making all of his disciples scour their own hearts? Does it make you realize your deficiencies or your failures? Does it expose some hidden secret things in your heart? Does it make you feel as if you've got to pull yourself together to do something to change? 
Or does it move you? Does it make you joyful and glad? Does it thrill you? Does it make you want to sing shouts of praise because you recognize? Recognize how close we are to a dangerous state if we don't come under the power of the truth. Let me pray as we prepare for this table. Oh God, we bow our hearts before you, recognizing that we often don't, or at least I don't, fall into the power of the truth in ways that I should. Oh God, forgive us. Forgive me for not examining my own heart before I take this meal and recognizing all that it means and entails. Be with us this day, Lord, as we take it, as we turn our hearts to you, as we think about what it is that you have done and what you're calling us to do and who you're calling us to be. I ask that you do this in the powerful and the awesome and the marvelous name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise.